thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about. Him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. The evil has gone. Hey everyone, welcome back to Grub Stakers, to the COVID-19 phase two run of it. Uh, we're still coming to you from separate homes as we deal with the the quarantine here. Uh, Grub Stakers, yeah, sorry, um, let me take that again. Can we catch you in, in again, Steven? Can we take care of you? Uh, sure, why not? All right. Get your head in the game, baby. You got this. I like that intro. I like separate but equal rooms. All right, here we go. One more time. Five, four, three, two. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Grub Stakers. Uh, we're coming to you live, recorded, from our separate but equal chambers in the quarantine. <laughs> I'm Steve Jeffries, and I'm joined by all three of my co-hosts. Yogi Pollywall. Andy Palmer. Sean P. McCarthy. We're coming to you uh, from multiple undisclosed locations. Uh, Grubstakers, mansions north and south, and wherever Sean's recording from. <laughs> which, whichever country. That's a CIA black site in Turkey. <laughs> Why has it got to be black? <laughs> Uh, we're talking about the billionaire Phil Ruffin today. He's a real estate gambling tycoon, uh, owns uh, properties on Las Vegas. He's friends with Donald Trump, uh, donated hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to his campaign in 2016. Mm -hmm. He's also known as like a shrewd, a shrewd businessman and was a formative influence on Trump before he before he knew the art of the deal <laughs> so we're going to get into all of his shady dealings with um unions in las vegas uh, as a possible epstein connection uh, there's a lot of interesting stories with this guy uh he's worth as of 2019 he is worth 3.1 billion according to forbes damn he's married to a Ukrainian model who's nearly 50 years younger than him. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Just I'd throw it in there. <laughs> I don't want to be ageist. Right. Absolutely the worst thing that billion that casino billionaires do is have age gap relationships. <laughs> <laughs> so he's worth $3.1 billion today. He, in 1972, he had a wealth already of $20 million. Wow. We'll get into the full story in his bio of his source of wealth, of course. But I just wanted to go through a mathematical example before we get really started of how unimpressive this actually is, if you think about it. Hmm. But Steve, if you start with a mathematical example, people might turn it off before they get to the Epstein stuff. Because you've already <laughs> blown the really interesting stuff at the front. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming up with 32.33, uh, repeating, of course. 
So you own a bunch of residential, commercial real estate. You might also own a stake in some real estate investment trusts or what are called rates. And if you mesh all that together, the average long-run historical rate of return over like over one year is about nine and a half percent. It's a uh, it's quite a volatile industry, but you're generally rewarded if you have if you're especially if you're a shrewd businessman like he uh, apparently is that five at a clip of nine point five percent. So if you start with twenty million dollars of initial deposit and use it to buy your portfolio in nineteen seventy two, and then you compound that annually for forty eight years up until the present you wind up with about $1.87 billion. Wow. Hmm. Right. And so that's with no windfalls. Um, you're ju- you're merely reinvesting all of the income from those properties back into what you have. You're not expanding. So he's worth 3.1, which is obviously more than 1.87. But we're going to get in some instances around, mostly around the great financial crisis in 2008, which kind of point to a lot of luck was involved, basically. And he had some unbelievable windfalls, which catapulted him up to a staggering 3.1 over 1.87 billion. Hmm. So sort of his claim to fame is he's like, well, he's just like this patient businessman who builds up his wealth over time without using crazy debt schemes and stuff. And to an extent, that's true. But I just wanted to put that example out there uh, before we get to the juicy Epstein stuff and everything. Uh, you're given that figure of 3.1 billion net worth, Steve, but um, it looks like according to Forbes website, I don't know if this is just COVID related, but they're saying July 2020, he's worth about 2.3 billion. So he might have just lost some money in COVID because of all the casino shutdowns and, and that kind of stuff. That makes sense because he's completely shut down right now mm-hmm. and there's no income and they probably reevaluated his properties. The uh, most recent estimate from Forbes, uh, July 2020, is $2.8 billion. Um, I'm guessing, yeah, with all the shutdowns and reopenings and stuff, it just it's fairly volatile um, mm-hmm. around, I guess, to the tune of $1 billion. Um, yeah, you know, he also owns stock, so there's a downturn in there, and it's not quite back up to where it was. Fellas. Come on, what's the difference between 2.2 to 3.1 billion, huh? A measly 800 million dollars? Jeez. It's, it's how much his wealth is Larry David. It, <laughs> it, it fluctuates by about a Larry David yes. over the course of a year. Right. You know, one one interesting thing about this guy is in in looking through his backstory and listening to him speak, he he's a guy who more or less has it all like he has a self-made score of eight and uh he was working in a wt grant store and he said he saw a man drive by in a cadillac with a beautiful redhead at his side and said that is who i want to be and he (laughs) became that (laughs) this is only goal in life really he became that and, and he's just a completely dispassionate bitter asshole um who really like has it all and is just spiritually empty like he there was uh an article in the uh wichita eagle about um a state senator that i'll get to and while he was being interviewed by just some reporter about his his uh relationship with or his like changing relationship with the state senator 
he just started yelling at this reporter on the phone like what are you doing why are you asking like (laughs) something where he can't just be like hey i got three billion dollars i gotta go and then hang up like he wouldn't even do that in his office in las vegas he has a chinese carved mammoth tusk from the ming dynasty Hmm. uh one of five in his collection there's no indication that he has any interest in chinese history or uh paleontology he just has to own these things for status he's also got a gold chess set um he's got a picture a picture with mike tyson just like all these like uh items to represent status and then he he doesn't seem to enjoy any of it uh he's he he's one of the best friends with the president who is best man Mm -hmm. at his wedding uh, his hmm. second wedding, possibly third. Uh, it's three. I think he's got uh, uh, three wives. Uh, he's been uh, divorced twice, and now he's on his third wife, third being the Ukrainian supermodel. But as we all know, a billionaire that gets divorced does not eat butt, ladies and gentlemen. I don't make the rules, okay? I just write <laughs> them in my mind as I go along. <laughs> so here is here is our uh, enthusiastic best friend of Donald Trump uh, introducing him at the 2016 republican national convention um this is a video that is hosted on youtube by the official rnc account it's also unlisted uh they weren't (laughs) they were the the republicans weren't that enthusiastic to present this to the world but here he is introducing donald trump uh very secretly it's loading my name is phil ruffin Donald and I have been friends for over 20 years and business partners. I can tell you as a friend, he has been unbelievable. Donald's word is his bond. (laughs) If Donald tells you something, put it in the bank. He's been my partner and friend, and believe me, his handshake is better than any contract you will ever write. Now here he is, just right off the bat, like plainly dispelling everything everyone's saying about how Donald Trump scams everyone. Um, <laughs> very, very subtle in his introduction. Here he is uh, talking about Donald's business acumen. He can see things that others cannot see. You look at a deal and make something incredible out of it. We were in Park, we were in New York on Park Avenue and 58. There was a building called the GE Building. I didn't like it. I said, Donald, stay away from it. He bought it, made two or three hundred million dollars on the deal. That's what he does. We're in Palm Beach with Robert Kraft. He had a, he bought a, Donald had a house on the ocean. He paid forty million dollars for it. I didn't like it. I thought it was a mess. He sold it for one hundred million dollars. Shows you what I know. <laughs> Excellent at reading teleprompter. Uh, here he is playing the crowd. New York, where's New York? He is in New York. You know what he does in New York. <laughs> and then here's here's a segment. Clearly, he's um, he had some he had a good time in the green room before this. Um, here's a story that starts out good enough. And then uh, it just falls apart. Donald does not give up. He says, 
let's go forward with this project. We'll put the money in. We will make the damn thing work. And he did. By the way, we put in $30 million apiece in four years. He didn't spawn quite the money in. I believed him. <laughs> I always have believed in him. Inspiring words. We didn't squawk worth the money in. Um, <laughs> what a fucking mess. Here's his story about uh, current our beautiful president telling his best friend that he's running for president. When he first told me, we were in Mar-a-Lago, he first told me he was going to run for president. I said, Donald, are you sure you want to do this? You're king of the world. You have everything you want. Why would you want to do this? He said, simply, I love this. I love America. Our system is broken. I am going to fix it. That's what America needs now. A fighter, an innovator, someone that knows what the hell he's doing. And believe me, Donald can do it all. I know him like I knew a brother. I love the man. He will make this country great again. Go, Donald. See you in Washington. A tsunami is coming. His name is Donald Trump. Thank you. <laughs> Man, barely standing, could barely make it through a six-minute speech on a teleprompter. I, I like to imagine he went backstage after and, and accosted somebody. and went, It's your fault. You put every word on the teleprompter <laughs> twice. <laughs> <laughs> He starts. He starts crying. <laughs> he said, "Donald's my my only friend." <laughs> that uh, that entire video could have been a Johnny Walker Black commercial. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is how fucked up we'll get you, buddy. <laughs> I love how he's like, "Donald, where's New York? You know what he did in New York. Like, as if he's a fucking natural disaster. You know what Hurricane Trump did in New York. Uh, you know what he's capable of. It is true, though. That That's like when you're having a political argument in the bar, and you, like, start speaking, and then you forget your points. So, like... You want to be like, you know, Trump, he brought, he fixed the ice rink in New York and like, you know, he, he called out the Central Park, but you start saying it and then you're like, I forget what my points are. So you, you know what he did in New York. <laughs> you know, the things. I like how he, he talked to it, like he brought up like Robert Kraft's mm -hmm. like house or something for a bit. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was a bad idea. I didn't like it. You did it anyway, shows what I know. <laughs> so, I thought it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> he brought up Robert Kraft's house. He's like, and then me and Donald and Robert, we went down to the massage parlor. And <laughs> Do Donald Trump's giving him the cut it off motion. <laughs> yeah. You got the Sandman with the fucking cane coming off the side. <laughs> yeah. Trump's like, I told, him, I told him to do a bump before this. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And he said, no, I have a private massage. As was the style at the time. <laughs> 1992. Donald Trump said, 
You lost your wife in a messy divorce because you ignored your family and emotionally destroyed them. I got a Ukrainian <laughs> wife for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. So Wikipedia says he's been married three times, but I tried to look up his first wife, and uh, oddly enough, she has the same name as an actress who was uh, ten years older than him, like a. Uh, child actress and it's not clear if someone just like the only sources i could find re uh referring to his first wife were uh wikipedia and other websites with the word wiki in it so i'm not sure he refers to his current wife as his second wife so hmm. either he was married to a hollywood person when he was a, a guy who owned grocery stores in kansas or um he was married to someone with the same name as a Hollywood person or someone on Wikipedia had some fun. Yeah, the, the, the Wikipedia person, uh, the first wife, and he's referring to is Mary Louise Miller. And uh, the second wife is Lynn Ruffin, uh, later not Ruffin, obviously. Um, but I believe that the way he puts it is that since he has kids with Lynn and he now has kids with uh, Nikola Yenko, that that is actually a family. Like, even though he divorced... Uh, Mary Louise Miller, his first wife. Well, they didn't have a family, so it didn't really count, you know. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say for any uh, MSNBC viewers listening, like a good reference point is uh, he has a Ukrainian wife. So just like the president, his wife is a KGB agent. <laughs> so you do have to keep an eye on him. They still exist, man. Um, yeah, and when, he, when he's asked about his flaws, he says that his uh, workaholism shortchanged his... Uh, uh first three children and his uh you know first or second wife and he regrets it deeply and what i read from that is that he basically just set three emotionally damaged rich kids loose on the world mm -hmm. and uh then yogi found something that maybe we'll get to now maybe we'll get to later that really reinforced that idea yeah i'll uh, tease it right now let's just say uh uh, Phil Ruffin's grandson, Dylan Ruffin, was uh, arrested for because he was shooting bullets at a school and then in a gunfight with the police later on. But uh, I'll cover that a little bit later. And I just want to say, you know, it's it's a lot of progress to see a Dylan shooting up a school without needing an Eric to provide emotional <laughs> support. <laughs> Anything else before we start the bio? Uh, he's a friend of Bill Cosby. He said that when Cosby would play Vegas, they'd eat chili dogs in his house. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> yeah. They're taunting us. <laughs> chili dogs, pizza. Come on, man. This is... Also, while we're talking about his family, he uh, he actually bragged in one profile of him. Um, uh, he, has a, he has a fourth kid from his uh, second or third, from his current wife. And uh, he, he bragged in the one profile. He said, I'm not above changing the occasional diaper, which means that he's probably changed about one diaper and uh, did it resentfully. <laughs> Can we go back to him shooting at a school, though? Yes. Like, what did he think? Sure. He thought it was like the Outlook Hotel where the school was haunted. It wasn't the people in it <laughs> who were bullying him. <laughs> it was like, I have to destroy this educational building. I will get more into this story. There is like, you know, for incidentally, the uh, local news affiliate was at the uh, residence where the shooting with the cops occurred and they had a camera up on the door while the shooting happened. So uh, I, I, I looked into it and uh, yeah, I will cover it extensively in a moment. But uh, it is um, 
at the end of it, you don't learn anything. You just feel sad. <laughs> I'll let you guys know that up front. Yes. <laughs> and edit it so that I say the Overlook Hotel instead of the Outlook Hotel. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that for you, Sean. I got your back. <laughs> In the Outlook Hotel, Clippy, Clippy's the one who says the N-word. <laughs> <laughs> Did you mean to type murder? <laughs> Uh, one last thing we can uh, mention before we start his kind of chronological biography is uh, I, I gave a shout out earlier to our possible MSNBC viewer listeners. Um, if you browse a certain section of liberal Twitter, you might already be familiar with uh, Phil Ruffin because uh, the 2013 trip that Donald Trump made to Moscow, uh, during which uh, the allegation is that the P-tape was recorded, that uh, Russian intelligence videotaped Donald Trump uh, uh, ordering two prostitutes to urinate on each other in a hotel room. Uh, during that 2013 weekend trip to Moscow, uh, he flew on Phil Ruffin's plane, and Phil Ruffin joined him because they were supposedly looking at setting up a hotel in Moscow at the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, it should just be noted that uh, <laughs> this is a man who has watched Donald Trump be urinated upon. Sean, why are you hard? And I think, I think we can say that without any risk of lawsuit whatsoever. <laughs> and that's how this went down. Right. Hey there, <laughs> Chris Hayes. Uh. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it, uh, regardless of whether or not the tape is real, um, I think we can all agree that as long as we just believe hard enough, the tape will be real. Um, it's still but, real to me. Exactly. But uh, regardless of that, um, a lot of people have pointed out some kind of interesting financial connections between Phil Ruffin and Donald Trump. So we'll get to those. And also, uh, Phil Ruffin, in fact, he, uh, they, uh, presumably, if it was his plane, they flew in a 737 because uh, a regular business private jet uh, needs to refuel on its way to Europe. So they were in a, I guess, a real big hurry to get, get peed on. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Svetlana was on the on the phone like, Donald, I can only hold it for three more hours. <laughs> <laughs> I drank so much water. You need to get here now. Now, Donald, you gave me your handshake. You told me I'd watch you get peed on today. If you wait another eight hours, it'll technically be tomorrow. I'm sorry, but can you imagine how yellow Phil Ruffin's pee is? <laughs> Just with the amount of Jack Daniels this guy drinks. <laughs> dangerously dehydrated, so, yeah. It's like, he just... Just pees on a sex worker and then she like dies of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> they have to cover it up like the Godfather too. <laughs> to get into the biography of the man himself, Phil Ruffin was born in Potter County near Amarillo, Texas. He's the son of Blanche and Roy J. Ruffin. His family's of Lebanese descent. So his paternal grandfather uh, immigrated from Lebanon to Oklahoma. Phil was raised in Wichita, Kansas, and his dad uh, eventually set up and started running a grocery store there. So he's Lebanese. Yes. Originally, his surname was Rufan, oh. R-U-F-A-N. And then either the the, the all-powerful immigration officer uh, changed it for him, or 
someone decided it, it just needed new country, new name. Right, sure. He has four siblings. Elaine Ruffin Namer, Roy Ruffin Jr., Pat Ruffin, and Pam Ruffin. In 1953, he graduated from Wichita North High School, where he was a wrestling champion. And in a preview of him neglecting his own children to an extent emotionally, a Forbes profile said that after he won the state championship in wrestling, his father, who never attended a single match, asked him if he was the one they were talking about in the newspaper. Wow. Yeah. So he actually had, I mean, he had some sports prowess. Also, um, his, his old high school, uh, North High School in Wichita, has apparently repeatedly tried to honor him in person at their annual gathering for the high school hall of fame Mm -hmm. alumni. Right. And he has refused to attend. (laughs) Wow. It is. It is interesting how like everybody in this family has been running an experiment on how to turn your children into school shooters. Yeah. (laughs) And then finally that has recently paid dividends. (laughs) Step one, name them Dylan. Yeah. (laughs) After a multi-decade investment that it's finally paying off. The, uh, the, just real quick, the school in question that Dylan shot at supposedly was the elementary school that he went to growing up. Hmm. Oh. Okay. We're teasing you a little bits of the story as we go. That's right. Mm -hmm. And there was, um, there was another tragic, uh, store part of his upbringing in, in Wichita, Kansas, was mm-hmm. his mother died when a house fell on her. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes, precisely. <laughs> Stephen, do you say uh, his mom's needs name is Blanche? Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? I have no idea. But Blanche, what a what a fucking B L A N C H E. Nah, it sounds right. But what a rustic name. Yes, my mom's yeah. Blanche. <laughs> Gone with the wind, ass name. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's just like, you just hear that name and you're like, he didn't get hugged as a child, did he? (laughs) (laughs) Now, Philip, if you want to be hugged, you have to win at wrestling, become a billionaire, and your grandson needs to become a school shooter. But if that doesn't happen, we're not going to love you. And you need tusks from the Ming Dynasty. (laughs) How many times do I have to tell you this? (laughs) So after high school, he attended Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas, for three years, and he also, he transferred over to Wichita State University, the um, the Shockers, and never got his degree, though. Uh, he dropped out. But all the while, though, he was starting up... the uh, foam hands for that team. <laughs> yeah, that's right, though. They're the Shockers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two in the pink, one in the stink. That's their slogan. <laughs> No, I literally, that's their... I I have no idea, Stephen. I'm just saying two in I the pink, one in the stink. And You're telling us you don't know the uh, Wichita State football team? No, for their basketball team. They're really good. Oh, oh, yeah, oh get, really? Get in the hole. Two in the pink, one in the stink. That's what they say. <laughs> yep, they are. Yeah, they are the Sharkers. But so are they named after that? Two in the pink, one in the stink? <laughs> or was it like... I don't know what a, a shocker is other than that. Actually, yeah, it's uh, basketball terminology. You see, when you're outside the three-point line, that's the pink. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Then it's... Uh, inside it's hard, the paint, that's hard the in stink. the pink. Yeah. 
They're they're named after the electric fence that keeps all the kids in practice. <laughs> you actually can't leave when you're on the basketball team. It's probably any any Wichita State University listeners can explain us explain to us that. Actually, before he uh, started these businesses, he got a job working at W.T. Grant, which is a, a now defunct uh, department store. And uh, according to Forbes, uh, he was once tasked with repossessing a monkey that a customer stole or didn't pay for. I don't know if there was uh, like a payment plan for this monkey and a, a customer just fell behind. You know, maybe, uh, I don't know, academia is rough and maybe Ross was having some trouble with the bills. But uh, he said it was a low point in his life. And uh, a quote from him is, I had to go pick the damn thing up. It's as low as you can get. Repossessing monkeys. Kids were hanging all over me. Don't take the monkey. Terrible. And it bit me on top of everything else. What? Oh, God. Yeah. And he said that the monkey experience, this is his origin story, taught him to take his father's advice and work for himself. So he bought a convenience store in Pawnee in 1958. I see. But what he's not telling you is he actually had sex with the monkey and started the AIDS <laughs> epidemic. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Actually, I think he, maybe just prior just prior to WT, he was working with it for his dad hmm. for a bit, like as his first job the, at the grocery store. Okay. So, yeah, so he got, he got his first, like, kind of for real job with his dad at the grocery store, and then he worked at the department store repossessing monkeys, apparently. And then, using the knowledge... <laughs> from those business ventures he started the hamburger joint i don't care that it's an actual monkey he has taken but the fact that a part of this guy's origin story is he's taken monkeys away in what the 50s that's when this is going on it's yeah, yeah. that's that's why you can buy monkeys from oh, just like a convenience what store. does the roughing boy do oh that boy well, he takes the monkeys away oh wow well someone's got to do it there was a department store in Wichita in the 50s that sold monkeys on layaway. Hmm. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, repossessing monkeys is the hardest part of my job. <laughs> yeah, but like you have to understand, in the 1950s U.S., filming monkeys smoking was a multi-billion dollar industry. <laughs> <laughs> so they were very valuable. So it, like this is 1958. 50, 57, 58, 59, when he has some of these early business ventures mm -hmm. after WT and like uh, he's doing the hamburger convenience store. Um, there is a story that he'll tell in an interview, and it also comes up in a few other articles, like through Forbes, that he got a loan from his father for anywhere between five hundred to five thousand um, dollars. He himself said it was five thousand. Isn't that right, Yogi? Yeah, and from from some like speech honoring him for some business award, he says that he got a five thousand dollar loan from the bank. In other articles, it's it said it was five hundred, and then from the uh, Las Vegas Advisor, it said that he got the loan from his dad. Hmm. And just to clarify, his dad owned a convenience store or multiple convenience stores. Um, I just saw a convenience store, a grocery store, actually, not not a convenience store. Okay, so his dad owned a grocery store, at least one yeah. in Wichita, Kansas. Right, and w when he would receive or the loan from the bank or his dad, he would be uh, 24 years old at the time. Right. 
So if it, I mean, if it came $5,000 in today's dollars is worth about 45000 which is pretty pretty typical for a small business loan that you would get if you do qualify. Sure. I mean, it'd be hard, it's hard to qualify for a small business loan for most people. If it came from his parents, um, I didn't hear any, I, I didn't read any story about him ever having to pay this back. Sure. If it came from a regular bank, all right, well, more power to him. Uh, he probably, if he's able to pay it back, but um, yeah, Yogi? One thing I read was that these gas station convenience stores that he was opening were the first self-service gas stations in Kansas. So previous to this, the, they'd have a guy that would take care of the taking of the uh, gas you know, wiener and putting it into the car vagina. Uh, but he would be like, no, people can do that on their own. And the oil industry was like, what? Men in suits and women won't be able to do this task. And he's like, nah, we'll, we'll figure that out. So he finagled the oil industry to change the law so that he could have a self-serve uh, gas station. That law changed in 1972 in Kansas. And prior to that, he had used some of the money that he presumably acquired from uh buying a few of the um from his small business ventures like uh he sold his stake in one of the early ones with the undergraduate friend that i told you about Mm -hmm. and he used that to buy a convenience store with a gas station gotcha and this was prior to the law to the law change and it was a bit um there had been there's already been there'd already been a bill attempt to do this to legalized self-service at these gas stations and um he bought he had already had a few convenience stores and then the law change happened and he was able to not have as many employees because you don't have to have a guy out there to to pump gas for everyone right Mm -hmm. so suddenly his properties became a lot cheaper to run and he was making a lot more money from them yeah, I mean, potentially you have a guy behind the counter, and then one guy that's doing all the work in the in the, the gas, pumping the gas into the car. So you you get to fire fifty percent of staff potentially, and now you just have the guy behind the counter, and then that's that's half the money back. Right. So eventually, he's able to amass about sixty convenience stores um, in Kansas. And he did so with very little debt. Well, uh, uh, he has the you know he has the business loan from either his father or the bank, depending on who you're listening to. Uh, but otherwise, um, it's pretty much just all on a cash basis. Sean and and we've kind of talked about this uh, a running theme with these various boomer billionaires in the U.S. is they. They all started their companies during the uh, greatest period of economic expansion in U.S. history. So, you know, that's kind of an advantage that's not available to everyone who wants to follow in their footsteps. But also something we mentioned on the Walmart episode that I think is worth bringing up is that uh, uh, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, uh, was also kind of starting these five and dime, these discount stores. And in the U.S., the minimum wage was created in the New Deal, but actually didn't apply to cashiers in these discount stores until Hmm. John F. Kennedy signed an expansion of the minimum wage early in the 1960s. So, you know, I mean, uh, I would can't say for sure, but it is likely that, you know, himself and his father 
benefited at least throughout the 50s into the early 60s from underpaying uh, people working for them. Yeah, from that same Las Vegas advisor uh, article, it says here that uh, the from the money he borrowed from his dad, according to the article, into a tri-state empire of 61 total branded convenience stores and self-service gas stations, Kansas oil wells, office buildings, warehouses, industrial parks, a bank, a dairy, and at least 14 hotels spread across five states. His Harper trucks grew to encompass one-third of the U.S. hand truck market, and that's just a partial listing of Ruffin's non-gambling ventures. So he he enterprises uh, one business into several others, and, I mean, really just buys up the town and becomes like, you know, when you see, like, those old-timey movies where they're like, oh, who's that? Oh, Mr. Ocelot? He owns the town. He became one of those <laughs> characters uh, in various uh, parts of these the, these five states. So between 1959 and 1974 or so, he's amassing a small empire of convenience stores, um, the hand truck business. He's generating quite a bit of cash from this, uh, given this, given its scale, and he he's also getting into real estate, and in particular. Um, a couple hotels like he buys his first hotel which he turns into a marriott in wichita hmm. and he also makes an important what would become a pretty important venture for himself by um purchasing a greyhound racing site and i think andy you had some more research on that yeah yeah so he he got the wichita greyhound park and he had his sight sets on turning it into uh, like a dog torture park and casino. <laughs> and so he, um, his plan was to invest with actually Donald Trump and install a Trump tower and Gillies in uh, Wichita. Uh, so he made a bid to install slot machines uh, in this Greyhound park. Uh, but he has repeatedly the the problem with putting slot machines in this greyhound park is that it's not yet legal in kansas to uh to have these slot machines and so uh it had to be approved electorally so in 2007 he made a bid to install them but he lost in sedgwick county by about 200 votes and he uh closed the park afterwards and he claims that the the slots bill was actually a job bill and on the result of the vote he said people were crying people who worked for me for a long time the only reason i pushed for it was i wanted them to keep their jobs and uh (laughs) the loss of the park cost him almost nothing but he laid off 250 people so you know um I think they were doing the his employees were probably doing most of the crying there Uh, but (laughs) what's what's particularly interesting about this story is his relationship with this uh, woman susan waggle who uh is his former arch nemesis she is the president of the kansas state senate and she was the uh biggest opponent of the slots bill uh in 2007 and it might have been related to her and her husband having extensive holdings in bingo halls Hmm. before she ran for senate but um she actually publicly criticized Ruffin's efforts to hold a new vote in Sedgwick County to allow sh- slot machines. Uh, and according to Waggle, those of us who oppose gambling don't have millions of dollars to fend off Mr. Ruffin every time he wants to push a ballot initiative. And then that ballot initiative uh, 
came up again in 2018 and she turned on a dime. Uh, according to a Waggle campaign spokesman, her position changed, quote, after meeting with Mr. Ruffin and other leaders in the Wichita business community and after learning about an, the uneven tax treatment that had been leveled on the industry. Tax fairness and tax equity is a top concern for Senator Waggle. Wow. But Andy, you know, let's not judge politicians and call them flip-floppers. You know, sometimes <laughs> your thinking on an issue evolves when somebody opens a briefcase in front of you and you see things from, from ways you didn't before. Before you heard that <laughs> click of metal. Well, it's funny you should say that because, you know, I'm I'm willing to believe that the president of the Kansas State Senate has complete ignorance of Kansas State tax code. <laughs> but uh, it turns out on further digging in October 2017, Ruffin gave uh, $1,000 to Waggle's state Senate campaign. Hmm. Uh, and then the vote failed anyway. But then in 2018, uh, Waggle expressed interest to the Trump administration in serving as an ambassador to Ireland, Belize, and Belgium, saying that her ca uh, as a Catholic, she wanted to serve in a country with a strong Catholic faith. And as a reference, she listed Phil Ruffin. Oh. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so this saying, is this, this is how you become an ambassador. It's always <laughs> yeah, confusing. Yeah. She was saying, hey, Mr. President, I'm friends with your buddy. Um, and uh, she was actually never nominated. Uh, and a former Trump administration official was quoted as saying about every state senator in the country thought they should be an ambassador. Um, and uh, this year, actually, Waggle also ran to become a U.S. senator, uh, to which Ruffin has donated a, the federal maximum of $5,600. Um, the result of that was that... Uh, Waggle consistently pulled in single digits and withdrew in May. Uh, but when asked about his uh, changing relationship with Waggle, Ruffin said uh, this to a reporter from the Wichita Eagle. Uh, what are you trying to find out, young man? What are you trying to do? I've answered your goddamn questions. What's the reason for this call? I told you I was supporting her. Goodbye. You know, I don't know what you people are doing trying to dig up. You say... You people are dishonest, for God's sake. I told you I support her. What else can I say? Goodbye. And then he hung up. Uh, and the reporter uh, printed that in full. I do like that Phil Ruffin's life is basically just, mm, let me just finish this rum and coke, and then I'll take this call from this reporter. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this, is, this park closed in 2007. In 2018, Ruffin purchased the land for the dog park, uh, which he had previously been leasing all this time while it remained closed. And I guess he was expecting the gaming bill to pass, but uh, it didn't, hmm. so on google it's actually listed as permanently closed with a single one star review hmm. oh. and to think the next generation of phil ruffins had to come and seize all those greyhound dogs <laughs> <laughs> repossess them oh i should mention um in 1994 ruffin so the those 60 that sort of army of convenience stores that i mentioned he was able to lease them out to the uh the french company total and for about 2.2 million per year is what he was getting from the deal hmm. and he so he used that money to get more into real estate and um in 1995 ruffin acquired the crystal palace casino resort in the bahamas and from there he's kind of sort of 
snowballing out the empire. He's mortgaging, so he mortgaged the casino, and he used it to, after in kind of an interesting um, case of union activity, um, he was able to purchase the new Frontier Hotel and Casino, which we will get into right now. Yeah, yeah. So he 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 in in ninety seven, of course, he made his move into Vegas. Um, and the new frontier is uh, was a casino in Vegas. It was opened in nineteen forty two as Hotel Last Frontier, and it was formerly owned by Howard Hughes. Um, hmm. So, I I guess uh, the next owner, Margaret Alardi, had to spend a good chuck and change cleaning out the uh, piss jars, but. Uh, <laughs> In 97, Ruffin was actually able to buy the casino for $167 million, which is a steep number, but seems kind of cheap since in the 2000s, these things were selling for the billions. Um, and it was $167 million for, uh, I guess, a, it was relatively cheap for, I guess, a couple of reasons. Um, it had a kind of an unfashionable for the 90s cowboy theme. And... Um, it also, at the time, was the source of the longest strike in the nation with the Culinary Union, Bartenders 165, Teamsters 995, Operating Engineers 501, and Carpenters 1780 having struck for six years, four months, and ten days. Well, hmm. um, Yeah, and it's not clear. Uh, it's referred to by the Las Vegas Sun as the nation's longest strike, and it's not clear if that meant at the time or in American history. Uh, initially... 550 people walked out for this strike initially um the strikers were joined by postal workers teachers and state country and municipal employees um and actually a local doctor named elias ghanem provided free medical services for the strikers delivering uh, 107 babies to their families during the duration of the strike I'm just going to hazard a guess based on the history of American labor unions since the 1990s that a six-year strike in the 90s was the longest strike in American history and remains such. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, the result of the strike is, is kind of bittersweet because so Ruffin was able to kind of settle the dispute with the culinary union in a way that ended up drawing praise from the unions. Uh, though my, I speculate he was just able to strike a deal with them so that he could buy the property for cheap. Um, he tried to mm-hmm. spend it in 2009 saying less fates. <clears throat> he tried to spend it in 2009 saying, let's face facts. $10 per hour is 400 a week before expenses. It's very hard to live on that. You have to get wages up so people can make a living. And of course the actual terms of the agreement he made with the union at the time was he agreed on starting wages of seven fifty per hour for food servers Nine fifty per hour for hotel maids and twelve dollars an hour for cooks. Um, also paying three point five million in back pay, as ordered by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, in order to uphold an NLRB ruling, which is kind of chunk change uh, for a billionaire, obviously. And uh, it was it was celebrated as a big victory uh, for the strikers. Uh, there's a block party that was thrown once it was resolved that was attended by Harry Reid, uh, AFL-CIO. Uh, Secretary Treasurer, now President Richard Trumpka, uh, Governor at the time Bob Miller and Jesse Jackson, and it included a ribbon cutting ceremony that involved both Jackson and Ruffin, uh, which I don't really have any comment on that other than it's weird, uh, just strange bedfellows. And um, uh, 
he hired back 280 of the original strikers who were willing to go back to work there of the original 550 who walked out. And in order to do that, he laid off uh, more than 100 other frontier workers. Um, so, again, kind of bittersweet. Uh, and then two years later, Ruffin announced plans to raise the hotel and casino. Um, so to him, you know, it wasn't really this grand thing. You know, he was saying $10 an hour is really difficult to live on. And his deal was seven fifty mm. an hour for food servers. Um, mm. And uh, his plan was to build the Las Vegas Trump Tower on part of the property. Um, and then he sold the rest, which he did. He owns half of the Las Vegas Trump Tower. And uh, he sold the rest for $1.24 billion in 2007, which was hmm. a Las Vegas record at the time. Hmm. Yeah, I would, I reading through this story, um, well, you learned that the, the the owners at the time before before Ruffin, they had they'd been courted by potential buyers before, but they were scared off by having to deal with like this protracted union fight, and it kind of the way I would characterize it is that was like a huge he just saw it as a huge bargaining chip, and like listen, I'll I will cure the entire union mess for you. Yeah, you don't like. Um, I'm just going to make this problem go away. Um, you'll get a decent deal in terms of cash as well, like considering the old, the aging, you know, material of the property and stuff. And so uh, it was less motivated about like, let's get the union their deal. And more is just like, this is, a, this is a steal basically. Right. <laughs> like you'd be, you'd be an idiot not to just immediately say like, yeah, okay, I'll deal with the unions. You don't have to. Yeah. And he basically got rid of them as fast as he could, tearing the thing down. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's been the great accomplishment of uh, labor unions and the longest strike in U.S. history was uh, getting somebody a great deal on a casino. <laughs> 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 of course, yeah. his his love for the working man um, uh, can probably best be seen in how he's handled covid uh, at the outset of COVID, he laid off 414 employees, um, which, according to Bethany Kahn, the director of communications for, and digital strategy for the Culinary Union, um, he says, uh, many gaming corporations are owned by straight up billionaires like Phil Ruffin at Treasure Island, Alex uh, Morello at Sahara and David Siegel at Westgate. Those are three billionaires who are not paying their workers anything during closure and have left them to figure out food banks and fend for themselves. It's shameful that they abandoned their workers during a global crisis. Um, so, yeah, he as soon as COVID hit, he he just kind of threw the workers out on their asses. Um, uh, and in contrast, uh, Caesars Entertainment and MGM Resorts uh, offered two weeks pay to furloughed employees and Wynn Resorts uh, committed to paying full time and part time employees through May 31st. And uh, Circus Circus, uh, another one of his current properties in Las Vegas, has per actually permanently terminated 262 employees as of July. Uh, Treasure Island, uh, another one of his properties, reopened on June 4th. And despite like treating his employees like absolute shit, uh, Ruffin is also currently suing two insurance companies that have denied claims of his for covering the cost of financial damages from the pandemic. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, apparently Ruffin has ba- has bragged about the fact that he has the funds to uh, stay closed for 20 years, but he still <laughs> furloughed all his employees without pay. <laughs> and not only that, he furloughs them all without pay, and then he offers them loans at a 3% interest rate during the lockdown. <laughs> what a fucking mook. His whole... Like one of yeah, one of the stories he tells about himself all the time is how like I don't, I'm not like those other real estate developers. I don't take out a bunch of debt and then like have to go into default later. I just do everything on cash. Like I could stay closed for twenty years, and then when it comes time to um allow, you know, those two hundred eighty workers, for example, at the frontier, or um or wherever to have pay for like five or six weeks or something and have health care. Um, he's nowhere to be found. Of course. Yeah. And, of course and he, um, he actually said, quote, I hope they get a $1,200 check soon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Referring to the first stimulus check the federal government had, had just handed out at the time. And if- yeah. Well, it's, it's not like he can call anybody about that. <laughs> Yeah, a personal friend of the president. And if you're holding on to any hope that he has any empathy for the working man, uh, here are a couple quotes from him. Uh, when I hear recession, I ask, what have you got for sale? And he's also quoted as saying that in a recession, you pay less in taxes, you buy other people's stuff, you make more money. So mm-hmm. it's people are just numbers to him. He's just a bitter asshole who uh, just takes and... Uh, leaves people on the street. Yeah, he said um, he had, in addition to all of his terrible quotes about, uh, well, saying the quiet part loud, he had like a, kind of a, an interesting one that threw me for a loop, but it's also very true and kind of illuminating. And he says, um, so, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but in his negotiations for, um, Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. Um, he's trying to buy it from MGM Mirage Resorts for six hundred in cash and one hundred and seventy-five million in secured notes, and oh, getting into debt a bit more. Um, he said, so he ends up buying it, and ten years later, it has a huge payoff. It's appreciated a lot, and he got a couple like screaming offers to sell it from a Chinese firm. And he said of the deal, quote, there isn't any price they could throw at me that would interest me, he told the Review Journal. Quote, money is not that valuable. Assets are valuable, especially when they're irreplaceable. And that kind of seems like an odd little quote, but it uh, it's, it's kind of illuminating in that um, we talk about billionaires and you get the Im- impression that, that all of it is in cash and liquid assets, but right. all, so much of it is tied up in fixed fixed real estate and other things that you can't immediately just sell anywhere you want. Hmm. And uh, he's right. Uh, most rich people hold less than 10% of their assets in the form of cash. And so... Uh, it's just that he's been like amassing all of these real estate assets over time that real people have to go and work at in order for them to be profitable. And that's how he's getting the cash that he that he's is so proud of. Right. I just sent a addendum on um, 
who he is as a person. He doesn't even do kind of the bare minimum um, billionaire thing of giving to charity. He uh, claims that he doesn't give to charity uh, because he counters that his businesses have accounted for a great deal of public good. <laughs> and his, <laughs> his Forbes philanthropy score is one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they're really trying to help you. Right. Yeah. With that score. Right. That's yeah. like he's probably, it's... he's probably the guy that they used to calibrate one on the Forbes philanthropy score. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like, yeah, like Andy mentioned at the beginning, he has an eight out of ten self made score from Forbes just sitting right next to his one out of ten philanthropy score. <laughs> it's almost like Forbes is going to him like, Buddy, we're trying to help you here. <laughs> Could you it's just like, like write a check for five thousand or something? The Forbes, the Forbes, uh, like the forensic accountant assigned to figure out how much he's worth, is like, listen, you can't take it with you. <laughs> you know that, right? Yeah, in, in one of the profiles, he's like, yeah, I give to like cancer or diabetes or something. Like he, he didn't even, <laughs> he, like it, it was just like some stock answer where he's like, I'll say something, but I don't care. <laughs> right. He was, uh, Cancer, he, was, I guess. he was reading the Surgeon General's warning on his uh, Jack Daniels bottle, and he was like, yeah, I give to uh, prevent low birth rate and low birth weight <laughs> in babies. And <laughs> I wanted to back up for a second, though. Uh, Steve, you mentioned at the beginning uh, this 20 million that he turned into, you know, two or three billion over time, and... The basic story is, as far as I've understood it up, to, as far as I've understood it up to now, is that he had this convenient, these convenience stores, these sixty convenience stores, and then he used that to buy strip malls and office parks and hotels, and then he used that to buy a casino in the Bahamas, and then used that to buy casinos in Vegas. Um, and I guess I just wanted to ask where that clarify where that twenty million figure comes from. The twenty million is what he's estimated to have been worth in 1972 after okay. he has purchased at least 60 convenience stores and they've been running for several years okay so he has that and then it also comes from the hand truck business and um yeah so basically the convenience stores the hand truck business and all the stuff that he owned just prior to getting into real estate for the most part right mm-hmm yeah, hand trucks. Uh, like I believe he actually owns the largest hand truck company in the United States, or is the largest one of the largest producers. I think he's actually the largest producer of hand trucks. Yeah. And um, you know, as somebody who worked in a grocery store, the hand truck is the device that uh, brings the Budweiser from the basement up to the shelf where you <laughs> buy it. It's pretty indispensable. So, Ruffin, we said is good friends with Trump. We played. The tape of him drunkenly praising him at the RNC. Mm-hmm. Ruffin met Trump for for the first time about thirty years ago at the Trump Tower in Manhattan, and they were cooking up a casino real estate deal, um, one that didn't they that Ruffin admits didn't pan out, but they according to a Forbes article that kind of traces out their early relationship. Um, they became pretty fast friends and Ruffin also notes that they quote, were both single 
and so they were and which kind of sets up a story about um ruffin in 2005 was invited he invited trump to dinner in las vegas and afterwards ruffin brought the brought trump and his entourage to see a vacant lot he still owned behind the old frontier uh, resort and casino hmm. and he suggested it would be a good location for trump's hotel and that's sort of like the genesis of their business and, and personal relationship so they decided to build this 60 64 story golden glass tower on the strip and eventually became uh it was completed as 1283 units and it's the trump international hotel so but the like he mentioned they were both single he's kind of like um looking for a new wife (laughs) um the relationship between the two billionaires it was kind of forged through business but it became personal in 2008 Ruffin married Alexandra Nikolayenko, who he mentioned is about 50 years younger than him. His former Miss Ukraine. Trump was his best man at the wedding. Um, Ruffin would let Trump use his jet to go visit Enrique Peña Nieto, who was the president of Mexico at the time. Um, he does say that he won't, Trump won't let him play go golf he says he won't play with me because i'm not that good (laughs) and he said he wants me to be on the women's tees and i refuse to be insulted said ruffin yeah it's hard to hard to manage the uh the golf club when your hands are shaking from delirium tremens (laughs) (laughs) but um this is like this kind of brings up so they're both they're both kind of dating around and that's an interesting story because they they have this connection to Russia and the um, like the Miss Ukraine pageant mm-hmm. and there was an interesting possible Epstein connection that Sean did some looking into yeah i mean it's so there's a lot of smoke and no smoking gun around this but um we mentioned Donald Trump is uh Phil Ruffins best man at uh, the 2008 wedding to his third wife, uh, Alexandra uh, Nikolenko. Nikolenko. Um, She was the former Miss Ukraine. uh, I believe in 2001, maybe. Yeah. But so the relationship between them, and I'll just mention a couple other things about the closeness of this, uh, aside from the 2013 trip together to Moscow. Um, There have been a lot of allegations regarding the Trump International Las Vegas Hotel, which we mentioned uh, Ruffin owns 50% of, and Trump supposedly owns the other 50%. But um, basically the allegation you can see going around on Twitter and Congress has investigated this and um, is that the $25 million settlement for the Trump University fraud claims were apparently paid out directly to trump by ruffin shortly after the election um so like and the way ruffin explains this is that uh as we mentioned you know trump supposedly co-owns the uh trump international las vegas hotel so ruffin says yeah i just owed him 28 million dollars and this was just all for money owed so he pays out this this 28 million shortly after donald trump wins the election and then almost immediately 
Donald Trump turns around and pays out $25 million to settle the claims with, um, with the students that he defrauded at Trump University. Huh. Um, this comes up in testimony of Michael Cohen. Right. right. And then there's also this Twitter thread from uh, Twitter user at the view from LL2. Um, and they just kind of go through how in 2017, Trump's Vegas hotel had some seriously strange money flows. Uh, the too long didn't read is that even though Trump co-owns the hotel with Phil Ruffin, the money was being diverted to LLCs that Trump alone owned. Huh. So, you know, again, these are like close friends, but it seems clear that Phil Ruffin is... Uh, lobbying his close friend directly by paying him out millions of dollars. Um, and I believe Phil Ruffin is like sitting on one of the COVID reopen the country committees along with Jamie Dimon, or at least advising on, on one of these things. So he's, yep. he's clearly a businessman that, uh, that Trump goes to for advice. And uh, that's a very prop- profitable place to be. And uh, it's worth noting that after uh, Vegas reopened in, I believe uh, early June, uh, cases have skyrocketed in Nevada. Hmm. And to get to the not fully established but existing Epstein links, there have been some uh, Daily Beast articles that talk about a guy named, a Ukrainian-born man named Peter Listerman. And uh, the the gist of this is that in 2016, New York Post writes an article about how since Jeffrey Epstein got out of his first conviction, he could no longer groom underage girls from American high schools Aww. so he went he went to Eastern Europe you know he got like these guys like Peter Listerman who's like a very shady creepy guy who would just go to these Ukrainian or Russian or wherever modeling events especially in Ukraine after the war broke out there's a lot of desperate people you know who like if they can go and uh, do uh, prostitution yeah, they can yeah fucking old guy for money that's what you're describing exactly. yeah yeah right um, and so, you know, the New York Post says in 2017, a recent visitor to Epstein's mansion says that the house in Manhattan is full of young beauties. Half, of, quote, half of them are from the Soviet Union and the other half are a mix of American and European. Um, and uh, the, the article references this guy, Peter Listerman, as a, quote, procurer and reported that he or someone who looked exactly like him was spotted entering Epstein's mansion January 2016. Um and this guy Listerman's very shady character, but the the story the stories in the Daily Beast uh, in the Daily Beast mention Phil Ruffin in a kind of um, roundabout way to him, where basically they interview in 2019 the Daily Beast interviews Tatiana Sevchenko, is the founder of Odessa's first modeling school, and Odessa in the Ukraine has been, you know, kind of devastated by the civil war, um, so. Uh, they talk about a different Daily Beast article talks about how made desperate by war Odessa's women look to models Cinderella story and they talk about how models in Odessa actually look to Alexandra uh, Nikolayenko of course the wife of Phil Ruff and they actually look to her as a success story like she got out she married a billionaire and a lot of Ukrainian models are trying to emulate that story but uh, Tatiana um, Sevchenko, the founder of Odessa's first modeling school, she gives a uh, quote to the Daily Beast about this creepy guy, Peter Listerman. And this is, of course, after Epstein's been arrested again. It's in 2019. She said, I have heard him approach women at our agency with our, his usual, hey, beautiful, have I, I have a client for you. Uh, it took a lot of work to keep him f- uh, from tricking our teen models in his traps. And the thing mm. is, like, again, 
This is after Epstein's name is all over the paper and, and everyone is trying to distance themselves from Peter Listerman. So you don't really know if she's telling the truth there. Uh, the article also talks about how, like in 2019, Peter Listerman tried to go to a different modeling event in Ukraine and he was, you know, he wasn't allowed to enter. Hmm. Whereas basically mm -hmm. before the Epstein scandal broke, he was able to kind of go in and out freely. And so why that's just a little bit weird is that Tatiana Sevchenko, again, the founder of Odessa's first modeling school, according to a different Daily Beast article, was actually the one who introduced Phil Ruffin to his wife, oh. you know? So, like, it, it's just a little bit odd where this guy who's like a creepy Epstein-like guy who's hanging around modeling agencies um, is you know, condemned by the founder of one of these modeling agencies after the Epstein stuff comes out. But this founder also admits she's the one who introduced Phil Ruffin to his wife. So uh, it's a little bit creepy there. And the one other link that I wanted to point out is in the New York Times in 2019, they make a point of talking about an event at uh, Mar-a-Lago, Don, uh, Donald Trump's members-only club in Palm Beach, Florida. Um, in 1992, uh, there was a calendar girl competition. Um, and uh, George uh, Horaney was a Florida-based businessman who ran American Dream Enterprise. He organized it at Donald Trump's uh, request. And uh, he arranged to have um, 28 girls come in for this calendar girl competition. And he asked... Um, he asked who's coming tonight, and it was just Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. Wow. So these 28 <laughs> girls fly in to, like, have a calendar girl competition judged, and it's just Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump in 1992, which, uh, I mean, you can only imagine how, let's say, creepy that is or what would be suggested or offered for the winner of such a competition. Um, and then you can take or leave this particular source because it's just some random guy on Twitter. But uh, OPC Ghost uh, in July 10, 2019 actually responds to this story by saying, quote, Trump did the exact same, quote unquote, beauty pageant thing with Phil Ruffin at Phil's Treasure Island property in Vegas. Oh, wow. It was f it was 50 girls and the two of them. Was I there? No. Downstairs. One of my customers handled the NDAs, the non-disclosure agreements, for the girls and came down to join me in the bar afterwards, unquote. And so you can take or leave that. But basically, Phil Ruffin has admitted uh, that is a sing according to the Daily Beast quote that as a single men the t as that as single men the two friends had been on double dates together in Florida unquote so it's not at all inconceivable that you know they're flying out to Russia together uh, they're you know meeting various Eastern European models they're doing these kind of allegedly doing these kind of creepy calendar swimsuit contests where it's just the two of them judging very possible that they were involved in in this kind of stuff and and i guess the last thing is that uh sevchenko again the founder of this beauty school she tells uh, she's asked by the daily beast uh whether or not ukrainian cinderella which is the nickname they give to phil ruffin's wife whether or not she's helping her country and the people suffering um 
and she sighs and she says, quote, many people, reporters, have tried to build a bridge or find out uh, more hot news about Trump from me or Alexandra, again, Phil Ruffin's wife. Right. But that, but that door is closed. Both Alexandra and Rufin are extremely careful and closed from all contacts. That is what I tried to explain to all the TV crews bothering me, unquote. So, so basically, like, yeah, there's a bunch of smoke. It sure looks that way, but there, there has been no smoking gun. But, uh, you know, if I were a betting man, gun to my head, I would say absolutely. I'm going to say Phil Ruffin confirmed pedophile. Yogi, can you add and post a, uh, like a Counter-Strike sounding confirmed pedophile? (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's the mid two thousands. He is probably a billionaire at this point, but he's not worth 3.1 billion or 2.8 billion, depending on what source you look at now. He still has some ways to go to that. So how does he... If he just stopped here, he would be roughly at the level you would expect if you just uh, followed the math experiment that we did at the beginning of this episode, if you listened to it or not. Um, so how do you get comp- how do you catapult himself to $3.1 billion? So how he really did it is the New Frontier Hotel and Casino that he ended that, famously ended that um, strike and bought for extremely cheap. Um, He had several attempts where he tried to, he announced, but then later walked back attempts uh, to develop it, demolish it and develop it into other projects until one time he was finally able to um, partially demolish and develop part of it. So in April of 20, in April of, 2002 Ruffin was proposing an 800 million dollar 1500 room resort to be erected just north of the new frontier with an unspecified hotel company as the partner um that didn't go anywhere um he tried to get uh the hotel company Harris to purchase it that didn't work he tried again in March 2005, announcing a $1.3 billion, 3,000-room mega-resort, eventually dubbed Montreux, after the French resort or the hostess jazz competition. Um, but 13 months later, Ruffin was still trying to put a deal together. Um, at, now, at this time, there was a there's a construction boom going on uh, for Las Vegas, and there was a glut of projects, and the Strip had driven construction prices so high that he eventually had to table Montreux as the budget had would have reached about $2.7 billion if he had chosen to build then. So he had just kind of scrapped it. Now, two years after that, in 2007, on the eve of the greatest real estate crisis uh, in the U.S. for almost 100 years, um, it's now that he's able to get a detail... Uh, a deal together so he told the las vegas sun he was quote dickering with l ad properties to sell the new frontier site for a mind-boggling 40 million per acre um and this was double what ruffin himself had said the land was worth a couple of years earlier hmm. he eventually sold the property for 1.24 billion or 36 million per acre for which Ruffin had paid $4 million an acre in 1998. 
It was the high water mark for this, for the strip real estate market just before the Great Recession. So, and oh, and right after that, El Ed um, demolished the entire place, only to find that it couldn't raise capital to build on the site. Oh wow! So it, that's just that's basically what I meant by okay. He's basically doing as good as you would expect of a real estate developer if they just reinvested whatever they had in the what they owned in 1972 right. the whole time until this great windfall that was just be, I mean he had no idea what was coming so he just happened to sell at the right time so that's pretty crazy and um, yeah I mean so much about what he does is just like he likes to think it's just this genius plugging away at you know, amassing cash, not doing any crazy dead deals, and that's how he did it. But I mean, really, he's just waiting for this to appreciate, and he happened to be lucky. Yeah, basically. To help round this episode out, um, we thought we'd share a few a pretty crazy stories about um, that we teased earlier. But um, so his grandson, Dylan, was involved in a shooting of some type with law enforcement, and um, it's a pretty crazy story. And I think Yogi has some more on that. Yeah, this is from uh, March 7, 2019. This is the uh, Shawnee Mission Post. Uh, the article is, Police responded to a report of Ruffin firing pellet gun a day before shooting near Highlands. So you have this guy, Dylan Ruffin, who is about 26 years old. And I don't know if he's the son of Chris Ruffin or Phil Ruffin Jr. Uh, it isn't said in any of the articles, but... From all of the articles I could pull together, what they basically describe is in November 2014, police responded to a report of a disturbance at the address. Uh, Dylan was in an argument with his mom and Ruffin bent her key to her Toyota and threw eggs at the kitchen window inside the house. Ruffin also had broken two dishes in the sink. Uh, in 2016, police responded to a report of domestic battery on the property with Ruffin's mother listed as the victim. And in 2018 of June, the police received a call at the address of the corner, 62nd Street and Row Avenue, where Ruffin told police he found a couple of gun magazines and bullets. Very odd. But what occurs in 2019 is a D.A.R.E. officer at the uh, Fairway, Kansas uh, Mission Elementary School, the elementary school Dylan Ruffin would attend growing up, is told that they heard gunshots and he, the D.A.R.E. officer goes to a window and sees a bullet hole in the window and a few bullets. Now, this is around 1 p.m. On, on March 1st. And then, after that, at around 2 p.m., uh, the cops are called in, and the mother of Dylan says, My son has a gun. And so the cops show up at the property, and they ask Dylan to exit the house which he refuses to do. At this time, the local news affiliate had set up their uh, television camera on the door of the house. So what I'm describing is... is eyes on, in the sky. It, it, it's actually <laughs> eyes on the ground. But yes, there is an eye, eye in the sky in this case. But you can see for like about eight minutes, uh, for about four minutes, the uh, police saying, Dylan, come out of the house. Dylan, come out of the house. He comes out of the house, brandishes a gun at the cops and he if you watch the video he fires the weapon but no bullet comes out of the gun and the cops shoot uh the glass uh, door and then shoot his leg and his back and he goes down and the cops take him 
it like misfired, right? He he pulled the trigger, and nothing happened. Well, he pulled the trigger, but there was no there's there were no no bullet came out. The police would later say in the report that no he there was no bullets in his gun. He had an extended magazine for this weapon, yeah. but there was no bullets in it. Sean, you had something to say? Well, that's an example of a billionaire privilege is that if you shoot at the cops, they'll actually <laughs> aim when they fire back at you. It is like a Star Wars fucking stormtroopers aim from the cops in this fucking video because it can't be more than like, you know, 15 or 20 feet. And listen, like I'm not going to pretend like I know what it's like to be shot at. So I'm not going to pretend like I could fucking aim to 20 feet if I was fucking get a shot at. But like it is interesting to think that they're not that far and they are trained professionals. They we should will be know to. soon enough the way things are going. <laughs> So, um, I just like, so I'm imagining the police radio where they're like, uh, yeah, suspect is a grandson of a billionaire. So you're going to actually have to aim this time, guys. (laughs) Well, so (laughs) like, God damn it. We can't just unload 50 rounds. (laughs) Um, the, the mother had told the police that her son had a drug addiction problem. He had been abusing oxycodone, Xanax and heroin and noting that he had just returned home from the methadone clinic. Uh, A later report from the police would say that uh, he was on a cocktail of drugs and had some serious firepower when he exchanged bullets with the police. But see, I don't know if that's fucking true, because the cops would later say that the narrative is that this was a suicide by police and that Dylan wanted to kill himself. And so he set up this whole thing. But they the only evidence they really have is that Dylan has bullet holes in his bedroom and they're towards the direction of the school. But I looked up the address of the house and then the school, and there's like a church in between the whole thing. I'm not saying that a bullet couldn't travel however far it went or that he didn't do this crime, but it's it's pretty thin What's if you ask movie me. movie where you like you twist your wrist uh, where there's like those lead assassins <laughs> who can spin the bullet around a uh, Is it Wantage? Oh, Jolie gun, was in gun, there? He practices like gun kata. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Listen, I, I there are a lot of holes in this uh, uh, police case as well as this incident. I don't know exactly what happened. I'm not saying Dylan didn't shoot at the school and it was framed, but I am saying that this is a grandson of a billionaire who, at this age, the billionaire would receive a loan from his dad. This guy has to see that his grandfather fucks around and with Trump and potentially Epstein and this man lives in a one-story house in Wichita and has nothing to show for it. I mean, you know, the Dylan Ruffin case, be it uh, suicide by police, just a guy that was on drugs, or a guy that wanted to cause some harm, I can't really say. I just know that if you told me my grandfather is a billionaire and I never see him because he rather would fuck his Ukrainian supermodel wife and take fucking jets to Russia with Donald Trump instead of be my nice grandfather, I'd say I'd maybe start doing oxycodone and and meth as well. I mean, you know, the man is a psychopath, and I'm not talking about Dylan Ruffin. I'm talking about Phil Ruffin. What type of individual goes, fuck my family, I just want to make cash instead? Fuck, fuck my kids, creams what life's all about. So, you know, if you look into the Dylan Ruffin shooting story from last year, uh, it doesn't say what happens to uh, him afterwards. His bail was set at $500,000, half a million dollars, and uh, they believe that uh, billionaire Phil Ruffin bailed him out. His uh, home that his mother also lived at is is now sold. Uh, I mean, 
listen, Dylan Ruffin got fucked before the shooting, and it was by the fact that there was no real family system that was going to take care of him in terms of who he wanted to be as a human being. Donald said I should talk to my kids. I didn't like it. I thought it was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, it man. Be, it would be nice if this episode begins a long downward spiral for Yogi where he becomes convinced that Dylan Ruffin was a patsy and there was a second <laughs> shooter with CIA training. I mean, I'll send the you guys bullet theory. the fucking footage and the articles I found. The fact that his gun had no bullets... You can see on the video footage that he shoots at the cops, but there's no bullet that comes out because you can hear when the cops shoot at him. And also, when the cops shoot at him and the glass breaks open, you can see him, like, flail like he's never he never realized he was going to get shot at. And the fact that, like, he was shooting a BB gun previously, I don't know, this kid just sounds like a misguided youth. And, you know, uh, to be moderately fair, most school shooters are, but... With this kid, it's not necessarily different, but the fact that his grandfather's a billionaire and he's not better taken care of just shows you the level of narcissism required to amass such a massive fortune. You're not just uh, taking money from your family and investing it in things, fucking over employees, or flying in women from other countries to essentially fuck with your friends. You're also legitimately going, oh, my family? Yeah, they don't fucking matter, because only thing that matters to me is these fucking greenbacks. Uh, you know- and you're... Did- what, about, what about your point, Yogi, about... Um, you were telling me earlier he's the same age as... He's the same age as Phil Ruffin when he was getting a loan from possibly his father to start a business. That's right. He's he's about the same age that his, his grandfather was before his grandfather would be, become the fucking entrepreneur he became. And I mean, it's like, it's just a kid that just has nothing to fucking do. Did you know that before the shooting, the elementary school was planning to withdraw its exchange students from Vietnam? <laughs> Wow. They had to silence it. It's just a patsy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the officer said they've also found bullets on the school property. So, like, what this guy rolled up to the school, shot at the school, rolled back home, and then shot through his wall. I mean, it just, it, it's, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, a few years ago, there was a incident where a guy doxed another, another person and said that I'm calling from a two-story house, and I have uh, my wife and my mom, and I got a gun to them in the back kitchen, and they gave them a fake address, right, because it was some sort of, like, a fucking cell phone prank or something, and the cops go to a house that's one story, and a guy comes out of his house going, why are these cops out here, and they murder that man, right? And that man's kids now don't have a dad because the cops showed up and decided, oh, we're going to shoot this guy. So I am less... uh, complicit with the fact that police facts are law because i don't think that this went down at all the way they say it did but also it's like you know i just don't get why this country continually fails its children both in terms of education but then also forcing their misguided youth to just fucking flounder until they end up in prison or the military or, or or the police force. It just is, um, it's disgusting. And on that uplifting note, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Yogi Polywell. Uh I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Phil Ruffin, if you're listening to this, it's not too late. You can still talk to your grandkids. <laughs> I'm Steve Jeffries. Thanks for listening. <laughs>